You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. The Samurai. In his hands, flashing steel became the ultimate weapon of vengeance. And the ultimate samurai was Ogami Ito. これ lived in a time of warlords and murderous clans, a time when oppressors took what they wanted, protected by the vicious mercenaries of the Blade. The Governor's Samurai are fast too, Ogami. It's their power you're afraid of. Ogami stood alone against them all. traveled a vengeance trail marked by the blood of his enemies. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Axel Cohagen. I do have a baby cart, but not nearly as cool as Lone Wolf and Cubs. Also with us this week is Mr. Jeff Todd. Hey, happy to be with you guys. This week we are walking the road of Maifumado and discussing Lone Wolf and Cub, based on a manga by Kazuo Koiki and Goseki Kojima, with scripts by Koiki. The first film of the series came out in 1972, and the sixth came out in 1974. The series stars Wakayama Tamasaburo as Ogami Ito, the film's lone wolf. He's the former Shogun's decapitator who was ousted courtesy of a plot crafted by Lord Yagyu Retsudo. The two form an uneasy truce, allowing Ito to wander through Japan, pushing his son in a tricked-out baby cart and taking assassination jobs for 500 Ryu a pop. We're going to be primarily looking at the original six films, but we'll also be talking about the television series, the original manga, the made-for-TV wrap-up, and more. Of course, we're going to be getting into spoilers on this one, so be warned. There is a beautiful new Criterion box set available out there, so I highly recommend you pick that up and uh, come on back after you've seen the movies. Or, if you're not convinced that these movies are life-changing... Definitely stick around, and you'll hear that and more, hopefully. So, Jeff, when was the first time that you saw the Lone Wolf and Cub films, and what did you think? Well, the first time I saw the films was actually Shogun Assassin. That was my first introduction to the Lone Wolf and Cub universe. Back in the early 90s, I was pretty obsessed with Shaw Brothers films, and I had kind of run through as much as the catalog as I could at that time through bootlegs and video stores and that kind of thing. And I remember reading uh, the gore score, Chaz Ballon's gore score in maybe 91, something like that. And he had mentioned Shogun Assassin. I had never heard of that film before, but uh, in his 
little review for it, he had called it a film that had very enthusiastic dismemberments and decapitations and incredible geysers of arterial blood. And that's really everything a growing boy needs. So I was, uh, I was hooked on finding that film and uh, a buddy of mine was able to find it first. And it was everything I wanted a samurai film to be. You know, up until that point, I had seen Seven Samurai. And even though now it's, you know, one of my favorite films of all time, back then, I don't know if I had the attention span to really appreciate it. Shogun Assassin seemed to take every idea I had of what a samurai film should be and put it on full display. And then from there, you know, we kind of went on through the Shogun uh, Assassin films, not not being able to see the original Lone Wolf and Cub films until probably mid to late 90s. I think like 97 is when I was able to get it on VHS. So it took a while to experience them in their kind of full glory. But Shogun Assassin was definitely that that gateway for me. How about you, Axel? Well, I actually heard about them through the podcast, and I had been hearing them mentioned here and there. I wasn't as familiar with samurai films. I had seen the ones that would get mentioned repeatedly, and this was something I'd always wanted to watch. And I was lucky enough that we still have what younger viewers might not know of a video store near us called Video Universe in Robbinsdale. And they had them all for me, and they were really nice about giving me the time to watch them all, so I have to make sure I give them some credit. And I found myself really enjoying them, but actually, to be honest, I thought I was going to be excited more about the, the swordplay, and I loved that. But I, I became more excited about the almost the film noir tone that Ogami Ito carries with him through these movies. He's very much a man carrying, you know, emotions that he's not going to express and i thought his performance throughout all six films was amazing i first saw this film god the or the films i should say back in the early well mid 90s i'd say they were available via video search of miami but i had heard that video search of miami when it came to japanese films that they kind of liked to subtitle things on their own and that they weren't necessarily the most accurate translations but they were the most cool translations like hey we might not know what they're saying but wouldn't it be cool if they said this um so i kind of <laughs> stayed away from that and then there was a an outfit called i think it was samurai videos um run by this guy merlin david and his shit was really expensive but at the same time high high quality stuff so i ended up buying uh, one at a time and then probably two at a time from him these Lone Wolf and Cub films, and I was completely blown away. These were the kind of movies where, as soon as I was done watching them, I immediately was like, who can I show these to? I really want to help spread the word about these movies. And I have to say, when I would show these movies to people, I would always show them in a different order than they were released in. I would show them... Hmm. Two first, tell them about who Ogami Ito was, kind of give them just like a five-minute thumbnail of who this guy is, show them the second movie, and then once they were hooked on the second movie, then I would show them the first movie, which was kind of more of his origin story plus another kind of like a follow-up story that's going on. They would show the main story and then go back to his his um, origin tale 
as they were going through this this A story, they would show the B story. Now, it's interesting that Shogun Assassin was the way that so many people came to these movies, and they might not even know that these other movies, that these Japanese movies that, you know, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 exist. They would only know it through Shogun Assassin. And it's interesting that Shogun Assassin kind of does what I did by showing the second movie mostly and then sticking parts of one inside of part two and showing his origin. So, and then even when I watched the television series, they did the same thing. You start off with Ogami Ito in, you know, full blown. And I think it's like episode three where they finally go back and start showing you his origin. So I'm like, okay, I'm not the crazy one here. First one kind of is a little slow unless you know what's going on. I mean, I love the first film and I will watch the first film all the time, but without that introduction, as far as who Ogami Ito is or what he can do, maybe you're not going to be the most interested in one because it's a little slower paced. That's interesting that you do that. It seems like everybody who is holding this material tends to present it in, in that in that similar fashion, whether it's Shogun Assassin or you starting with the second film before showing them that first one, that first one being a, a pretty significant downshift from from the second film uh, in 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 film. So that's really interesting that that you did that because even in the manga, you really don't get a whole lot of backstory until maybe the the eighth chapter. I mean, the eighth chapter is when Daigoro has to choose the sword or the ball. So even in that manga, you're getting all that action first, and then they're slowly filling that in. So that's interesting that you did that. Before I even watched the Lone Wolf and Cub films, I had heard of Shogun Assassin. Shogun Assassin was definitely a staple to a lot of video stores. I remember it being on the shelves at the Blockbusters where I worked. And I remember reading about Shogun Assassin in Roger Corman's book. Now, I don't tend to do this too often, but I want to read this to you because it's hilarious. When I watched the first Lone Wolf and Cub movie, I suddenly was taken back to this Roger Corman book. And I was like, oh my God, this is what he was talking about. But he describes it in such a different way, but it's it's beautiful the way that he describes it. So pardon me guys while I read a, a little bit. So this is from uh, How I Made uh, 100 Movies in Hollywood and Never Lost a Dime. God, I wish I could read like Roger Corman. I wish I had that grandpa <laughs> voice, but oh well. And I looked. I even Maybe looked a for an, original on Henry. Yeah, I even looked for a uh, an audio version of this book because I was like, God, I love the way that Roger Corman talks. Okay, so it was part of a fantastically successful series in Japan called the Baby Cart Films. It was about a samurai and his baby son, and it just pushed everything to the absolute limit and beyond. I still remember the early key scene. While the samurai is away, his wife and everyone else in the palace is killed in an attack. Only the baby son, who is too young to walk or talk, survives. The warrior returns and swears eternal vengeance on the perpetrators of this crime. So in a moment of high passion, he puts the crawling baby on the floor between a toy and a sword. He tells the baby, who obviously cannot understand either Japanese or English, if you crawl to the toy, I will kill you because you will be a hindrance on my mission of vengeance. But if you crawl to the sword, I will take you with me. Of course, the baby starts moving towards the toy. Just then, however, the sky opens up. A shaft of sunlight comes down and flashes on the silver blade. When it catches the baby's eye, he quickly reaches over and grabs the sword. I said to myself, this is absolutely wonderful. I could never have thought up a scene like that if I tried all my life. The man who came up with this is an insane genius. (laughs) 
<laughs> now, what's hilarious is that there is no sunlight. Like, he remembered it in a different way than it actually takes place yeah, in the movie. Yeah. And I've watched I've watched this origin probably uh, at least three or four times and read the manga, and there's never a shaft of sunlight. <laughs> but I'm always looking for it, and I always thought that that was kind of like this really cool idea if that had happened. But no, Daigoro has that blood, that blood of a killer, that blood of, of the Ito clan, and he manages to decide against the ball and go with the sword, even though Ogami Ito would, he says that he'd probably be a lot happier with his mother. He'd be a lot happier if he just allowed Ogami Ito to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And those are the moments. I mean, this whole series, I mean, we can talk about the first movie and the whole series is filled with these kind of moments and that's the thing that i like about these is and maybe it's kind of going along with what you were saying axel is that i like the quiet moments as much as the bloodshed now the bloodshed mm-hmm. is insane and i love that i mean it reminds me of that end scene of sanjuro where there's that geyser of blood but you get that mm-hmm. all over the place in these lone wolf and cub films and oh my god it, it just but those moments when they're going through the forest, those moments when Daigoro is playing in the stream and stuff. I mean, those are the moments where I'm just like, this film, the, all of these films are just so beautiful. The water scenes especially. And then when you get to the sixth part, the snow I really liked as well. But it, it's a it's a beautiful movie. And then with very, I don't want to say ugly people, but very real people. There are very few people in the film that look like pinup models or muscle and fitness stars almost everybody there looks like they could be behind a counter serving you something which when when the violence hits it makes it more more realistic because they look like normal people well that's the thing even with ogami ito with wakayama tamasaburo i mean there was question about whether he would be able to pull off this role in real life. He knows judo and he can do like flips and all this kind of stuff, but he's a portly guy. I mean, he kind of reminds you of Sam Hung as far as like, wow, this portly guy can do a whole lot of crazy moves, but his use of the sword and all this stuff. And then the use of his hair, the way that he just gets more and more unkempt as some of these movies go along. I just think that he's a terrific hero and just, I love watching him, and I love watching his face, especially you were saying the the way that he's so impassive so much of the time. He is like the coolest cucumber in all of Japan. Watching him, it was very frightening. It reminded me of something out of a, I don't know, like a more of a, a family film where here's this character that you've known all this time that suddenly is capable of great violence and then goes back within themselves. I've always thought of the television series to kind of be a more uh, accurate version of who Ogami Ito is. But within the context of the film series, I think Tommy Saburo Wakiyama, uh, he almost has more of a fatherly type of presence, even though he's kind of a gruff interpretation of Ogami Ito versus the television series, which is a little more faithful to the manga. He still has, I think, a, a paternal presence that surpasses uh Kinesuku uh, Nakamura, uh, who, who plays Ogami Ito in the, in the television series. Um, so that gruffness, almost, it, it almost starts to work. It doesn't necessarily work in that first film completely, but by the second film, he's so assured of, of who he is and, and what his mission is and his responsibility to Daigoro that the gruffness kind of just becomes 
you know, it just kind of lends itself more to that tale, I think. Well, in the way that he uses Daigoro as a pawn, and the way that he will put Daigoro in danger, and people are constantly questioning him about that, and he's just like, listen, we gave up everything when we swore vengeance. Daigoro and I are the ones who walk this path between heaven and hell. You know, we are the ones who live in the land of demons. We are both prepared to die at any moment. So he has, even though he betrays that several times to show that he really does care about Daigoro, but he will say that to his enemies to just kind of draw them out and let them know, go ahead, kill the kid. I don't care. Yeah, his path is assured already, so it doesn't it doesn't matter to him. I said that he's the Shogun's executioner. So what's happening in these films is that there's like different positions. There's the Shogun at the top of the pyramid, and then along the pyramid there are other stations. You know, there's the head of the ninjas. There's the Koji Kaishikunin, the uh, Shogun's uh, executioner. So he's the guy. Ogami Ito is the guy who, when you're cutting your op- your belly open performing seppuku, he will chop your head off to basically make it go a little bit faster for you to ma- and, and just right. take care of business. Which is nice. I mean, let's say that. That's a nice gesture. We It's mm-hmm. appreciated. And then he also cares about his position a lot he will for anybody who he dispatches that way he will get their family tablet take it back to his place and he's got a little shrine and he'll put their tablet in there and then he'll pray for their souls and he's a very spiritual guy you know even though he's kind of ruthless when it comes to this stuff he is is a very nice guy he tries not to be mean about anything he tries to follow the rules and he is all about honor and Bushido and just, you know, following these things, he plays the rules against themselves at some point, because when the head of the ninja, uh, Lord Yagyu Ratsudo, who's not necessarily the public face of them, he's kind of the the hidden face of, of all of these bad things that are happening, when he sets these things in motion in order to get Ogami Ito out of there and to put one of his own people as the Shogun's executioner, it's great because they come over to Ogami Ito's house. They tell him what's up, you know, like, hey, we're going to look in your temple. And, oh, my God, we found the Shogun's crest in there. You're praying for the death of the Shogun. We have this letter from these guys who say that you're praying for, for the death of the Shogun. They killed themselves, so obviously they can't be questioned. So, you know, hey, we're going to come over and we're going to kill you. We're going to take you away kind of thing. And when they come over, he's wearing these white robes, which are the symbol for death. And I love this whole thing when they're like, oh, great, you've already prepared yourself. When he starts to laugh at them, that's one of the best moments of the whole series is just that you guys don't understand. I'm not prepared for death. We're going to be reborn on this path between heaven and hell. We are going to be reborn as demons. Shinishu 
ただいまより冥府魔導に金とする我ら親子の門出の晴れ着でござる。<笑>ご上位逆らうか、黒田が、お前一刀。魔導に入りし、我らは上人にあらず。さえば上位など。少し。Yeah, and I think that's what makes these films great is is you have everything built into this franchise. You have philosophy, you have politics, you have a hint at what could have been a loving relationship、um, with、uh, a character he meets in the third film.、Um, you have his paternal bond with、uh, with Daigoro. There are so many things happening all at once in this film, and that's I think what makes it so what makes them so special is you do have this kind of almost beyond just. A simple Chambara film. It's beyond just being a samurai film. It, it's, it's so much more than that. I think it really elevates the genre itself. As soon as he started saying, and the, the scene I remember most clearly is when Dagaro is being held over the well and he says, We've made our choice. You、yeah. know, it, we're on the path to hell. And I thought about Japanese mythology and demons, and I was thinking he really is, he's kind of a trickster spirit. Um, he's kind of a, a punishing, avenging angel, and yet he's being played by the most. I, I couldn't help but think of him as sort of like the most John Goodman of guys. A John Goodman who can perform as a samurai. Yeah, he says, Go ahead, drop the kid. And then he tells Daigoro, Prepare to meet your mother. And Daigoro kicks off his sandal, and then Ogami Ito waits. And counts. You know, you don't ever see him counting, but you know that that's what he's doing later on because he waits as long as it takes for that shoe to hit the water. That's how long he knows he has until Daigoro is going to hit the water and he dispatches all those people within those few seconds. I love that. Yeah, and Daigoro also uses, doesn't he use the counting technique when he's being dunked in there that he's been working on、uh, in the previous films、uh, in that. In that In that scene,、uh, he's, he's going through his counting exercises that Ogami has been teaching him. Well, yeah, and that's that moment you're talking about, that gruffness of him being a father. When they're there in that, that hot tub and Daigoro's counting and he like, misses number four, and Ogami Ito's just like, Daigoro. He just, I mean, they barely ever talk to each other. You know, he just will say Daigoro's name and Daigoro will say, pa! And that's about it. But yeah, and that, you were talking about the way that he uses. Daigoro in this, and there's the moment I can't remember if it's if it's two or three. I think it's three, where he's he's going up against a guy who has pistols, and he puts the like sends Daigoro out in the middle of a river, and Daigoro starts pretending like he's drowning. So here comes this guy with his pistols, and he starts starts taking off the pistols and runs out into the water, realizes that it's like not deep at all. Daigoro stands up. <laughs> He realizes what's happened by the time before he can reach his pistols back on shore, there's Ogami Ito to, to dispatch this guy. How was it possible to kill this man? There was never a minute he was without his pistols. It must be Ogami Ito who did this. I know I'm right. It was him. We should probably talk about the way that these stories are written because, you know, we've, we've said that they're based on the manga. It's almost like, you know, I've read most of the, the manga in. You can see glimpses of the movie in all of these stories. It's like he would take, the writer would take 
different pieces of these and just kind of string them together in a different way than they were presented in the manga most of the time and give us whole new stories. So that's why they, they flow very, I won't say oddly, but there's a very vignette quality to them. And that's why we generally have two or three different stories happening at once within one of these films. You know, you'll follow a side character for a little while. There's the, I think it's the woman in, is it, I think that's also in three where she is uh yeah she's there in the boat at the beginning and we follow her character for a while and she's been sold to this guy she's going to be turned into a prostitute she bites off the guy's tongue ends up in ogami ito's room they hide her and then it turns into this whole other thing with the these yakuza this female yakuza who's there and it's great because it that's like three or four different stories all kind of pieced together and it flows in a in a terrific way in these films. It also, it makes it a little difficult for me here sitting on this podcast to keep them straight sometimes, but I'm trying to do my best when it comes to that. You're doing good. You're doing good. Thanks. But I think it's, it's worth noting that, uh, uh, Kazuo Koiki, uh, the author of the manga, um, scripted the first three films. Um, is that it, I think I'm correct on that. I think he did four and then he co-wrote five and not, not nothing at all was six. Nothing at all was six. Yeah. And I think in four, he contributed a song. He, and then I think that's why you're, you're, you see that kind of that uh, familiarity with the material. Um, I, I think anybody else I think would have taken those little moments like that in different directions. I don't know if you would have had all those side stories in there. I think in a lesser film, you would have seen Ogami, uh, which I was talking about earlier, Ogami, you know, kind of fall in love or at least kind of um, hint at a, at a romantic relationship uh, with that, with that girl. And the film never really does. I mean, it's certainly she's interested, but Ogami's not. He's got better things he has to do. So I think that's just where you're seeing the, the author's voice really come, come through in, in moments like that. I loved that in this, unlike you know many larger-budget blockbuster films, violence doesn't happen in big, gracious ballet arcs. Violence is specific and brutal and to a purpose, and fights are over fairly quickly, but still with a tremendous amount of talent an intellect on the part of Ito. And that at first that surprised me in watching the film, but once I got used to it, I appreciated it that, you know, that's the way it was. Ogami Ito's style with his sword and everything is so great because he does this thing where he'll lash out and strike all these people and then stop and slowly put his sword away as the people are falling. Or, like, the sword will be... D- in the scabbard and then the people will fall it just it's terrific it's like they're this this tableau of violence we have all of these people i love the the moment i think again it's in no this one is in two where there's a series of female assassins that are attacking him and daigoro and that's one of the moments where you really get to see how tricked out the baby card is because he's got knives and weapons hidden everywhere on this baby card. And at one point, this woman's coming towards uh, Ogamito and Daigoro is the one who hits this little switch and a knife comes out and just stabs her right in the belly. And you get to see like three of these female assassins are around the cart 
Ogami's already killed them and with the help of Daigoro, and then he has to move the cart back, and then they fall over dead. Those are just those moments where you're, to me, I'm laughing, you know, and I think I'm supposed to be laughing because there are so many over the top <laughs> moments like that. Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't the lady jump out of her kimono in that same, Oh my God. That scene? And run and backwards. backwards. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's running backwards. Cut to Ogami Ito's eyes. She's farther backwards. Cut back to his eyes. She's <laughs> off the screen. Cut back to his eyes. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. I'm, so I'm pretty yeah yeah it's amazing uh but one thing I, I wanted to say real quick was uh i remember listening to the audio commentary on Sidney pollock's the yakuza and he was talking about how hard uh ken takamura had to study flipping that sword back into its sheath mm. um and that was like it looks like second nature for tommy saburo wakiyama and it probably it obviously was Right. Uh, but how dangerous that is to do, even for trained swordsmen. Um, and the fact that he does it several times in each film, it's just, that's so impressive. And I love those moments where he'll just like snap the blade. So the blood comes off and then he'll slide it in there. I remember reading in a book of critical theory and I wish I could quote where the idea that when you're in sort of boundary areas, when forces are sort of coming together, that's when you get monsters. And so here you've got the establishment that he's been kicked out of, and then the other rejects and thieves and miscreants, and he's sort of in between in this realm of monsters sorting out heaven and hell. And that's why I like that so many of the characters were so personal without being over the top. Although I do have to say, I kind of ruined part of, I think, the third movie, because the the assassin with the guns for a brief second, I realized he looks exactly like Mo Sislak from the Simpsons. I kept picturing <laughs> Mo Sislak samurai assassin and I laughed a lot and I was probably should not have done that. I love the laugh of the woman in two, the head of the female assassins when she'll give those amazing, huge laughs that she loves to do and then immediately stop. <laughs> Yeah, and because I saw Shogun Assassin first, all I hear is Sandra Bernhardt's laugh. I have still yet to watch Shogun Assassin all the way through. I I like the idea of telling the story from Daigoro's point of view. It's an interesting way of telling the story. I don't like that they change Yagyu Retsudo into the Shogun, that they kind of take that away. Or that he talks only in reverb. I love the guy who plays Yagi Retsudo in the first film. He is so good, especially the way he's just like... And so I kind of miss him later on when he's replaced by two different actors. Like we, we, we could, we could make six movies over a period of two years. We could have the same guy, thank God playing Waki, you know, playing Ogami Ito, the same Daigoro, but we have to have three different. <laughs> Yagi Red. Yeah. I mean, four if you count the unofficial seventh film where Tommy Saburo Wakiyama plays Red Sudo. I have to is... admit that 
Retsudo was it was not the most compelling character for me. I really liked a lot of the other times, but it it was like a lot of films where the the lead the head villain is is a letdown, and I kind of like that you never really get to him. You're just always stirring yourself around in hell. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of one criticism of the series is that we never get the conclusion, but at the same time. I kind of like that. Man, so did I. It kind of works on a philosophical level a little bit. I mean, he just sleds off into the whiteness at the end of six, never to be seen again. Yeah, and it's, you know, revenge doesn't really ever have an end. Your paternal bond never really has an end. There's a lot of things you could read into it, but yeah, I totally get it. You really want to see them go head to head in a fight because there's no way. Oh, that fight would last two minutes. You know, Ratsudo just didn't have the uh, doesn't have the strength. He's a much stronger character in the manga. Definitely, yeah, yeah, and in the television show. I mean that yeah. that final battle between uh, Ratsudo and uh, Ogami Ito is almost the entire third season of the television series. I mean, there's this other character, this really annoying poisoner character who I just could not stand, couldn't stand <laughs> looking at him, didn't want him to be on screen after. Right. Like three episodes, but he ended up being there for almost every single episode of the third season. But yeah, they will, they'll battle, and then like uh, Daguerre got sick, so they had to take care of him, and then they come back at it, and it's just this epic fight that lasts for all of these episodes. It was crazy. Yeah, and in the manga, it lasts for days. Like their fight takes days to oh, yeah. reach a resolution. There'll be moments where, like, the one is holding the sword of the other one, like, over his head, and it seems like that takes hours for them to make the next yeah. move. It is like this master chess game, but played with swords. If we talk about Daigoro a little bit, I I have an interesting connection, I feel, because we have a four-month-old in our house named Evelyn, and she's the most beautiful girl in the world. But I couldn't help but think about the comparison, and is a little older, but my daughter is not ready to dispatch of any ninjas. I think you're underestimating her. I mean, I can give <laughs> it a try. <laughs> no, what I can do is find some people that I'm not so fond of and ask them to come into my house at night and just see what she does. <laughs> but also thinking about in terms of a little more seriously, like her care, how much we haul around with her when we go places and how little Daigoro has and how little... You know, we fuss over our little girl all the time. And and Daigoro, he has to pick up on, like, those micro-nuances of fatherly praise. And I couldn't help but thinking, and this is the sort of psychology side of me, growing up, like, what's Daigoro going to be like? He's not getting a lot of affection or praise. He's getting very minimal cues onto things. I thought it would be kind of interesting if you did a sequel later on. This is probably heresy. You know, you would have Daigoro, I think, would grow up to be a villain. Well, it's definitely not heresy because there was a follow-up manga to it. And that is basically picks up right where they leave off with the end of the, the last manga and then go from there. And I'm trying to remember if that was uh, Koike as well or if that was somebody else picking that up. No, I think it was. Yeah, it was. It was Kazuo Koike and Hideki Mori uh, were the ones that did that. And then I haven't read that one yet. It was released uh, by Dark Horse Comics, and it's called New Lone Wolf and Cub. So it's definitely out there, Axel. So you're you're not wrong about that. I don't know if he becomes a villain. I don't imagine he does, but 
I've always wondered that as you're watching all that carnage kind of through Daigoro's eyes, it's just like, what is this kid going to do when he grows up? Kazuo Koiki created Daigoro as um, as just to be a simple weakness for Ogami Ito. He thought that Ogami Ito on his own was too strong, so he added the kid to the story. And so it's interesting to, to look at Daigoro as a weakness because the character is so strong. He doesn't have a lot to do in the films. It's a little more to do in the mangas, but he's still a very quiet character. And even though we're supposed to see him as a weakness. I don't know that any parent would see that child as, as a weakness. And I don't think he's, he's a weakness in, in the story. He's certainly an open spot of vulnerability, I guess, which could theoretically be considered a weakness, but, um, but yeah, that's, uh, that, that's interesting. I thought he became something else. He became a stand in for our own. Cause he's such a, like, not expressive, it's easy to project yourself onto him. He became a stand-in for our own innocence watching the movie and I remember there were several scenes where Origami is doing these you know, horribly violent things that he has to do and then you see the child watching and it changes the whole scene because from that point of view you think about what would that be like when you didn't understand things. And I thought just putting the kid watching, it changed everything. It was almost like something Hitchcock would have done. From one of their first battles, he is a tool of Ogami Ito. He is helping Ogami Ito. That wonderful first duel that they have in the first film where – and I, I know that this translates so beautifully in English, and I don't know if they have the same play on words with the original Japanese or not, but there's that moment where Yagyu, one of his many sons and pretty much it's almost like a son a movie gets killed <laughs> for a little bit here right. but one of his sons is is having a duel against Ogami Ito whether Ogami will you know be punished will be killed or whether he you know if he wins this duel he'll be able to travel free as long as he doesn't come back to the capital and the way that Yagiratsudo is there watching and he is narrating and he's just like oh you know Bison has the son against his back and there's Ogami Ito with his son on his back and then that Ogami Ito turns it around because having the son at his at Bison's back is going to be blinding to Ogami Ito he's not going to be able to see exactly where he's going to be striking all this kind of stuff as he's running towards Bison he ducks his head and there's a mirror on on Daigoro's back on, on his head that blast light into Bison's eyes, and then Ogami Ito gets to kill him. I mean, Ogami Ito, there are moments in the films where you're like, he's cheating, but you don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, even when it came to, like, Gunbei in the, I think it was the fourth film, where you see Yagyu Gunbei, one of uh, Retsudo's other sons, who... They kind of give him this backstory all of a sudden of like, oh, yeah, here's this other son. He was up for the position of uh, decapitator, but Ogami Ito got uh, in the way between his sword point and the shogun. And basically it was a breach of, of etiquette because you should never point your sword at the shogun. And by Ogami Ito putting himself in, quote unquote, harm's way, he won the battle. And then Gunbei... 
ended up like they it's very convoluted they have this guy who puts on a face that looks like Gumbay's they cut off his head they send the head to the shogun say we have punished my son for this and then Gumbay is set out on the countryside to wander and then it's really weird because one two and three i have to say very very solid films four five and six not necessarily as solid as the first three no, I think uh, the third one is, I, I think it might be end-to-end my favorite film Agreed. series. Yeah, it's just, I mean, that's a Swiss watch of a movie. Everything is just perfect. Uh, each scene is perfect. The camera becomes almost a character in the film at that point. You have one of the greatest POV shots in the history oh, of cinema yes. uh, in that film. But I, I agree that four, five, and six are lesser films for in particular feels just kind of almost they're they're not sure what they're doing they kind of start to lose track of the character a little bit i think well and the reason why i say it's not necessarily those last three aren't necessarily as strong is because here we have gunbei at the end of four getting his arm cut off by ogami ito and then he's mentioned by name in six as being dead and it's like wait ogami didn't actually kill him so but in the movie world he's dead so that's why we're going to go to this illegitimate heir and the illegitimate heir's sister and do all this kind of stuff. And yeah, you can really tell that Koike did not work on the script for that one. And I got to say, the music for that one is just, it's kind of awful. <laughs> yeah, it's not, I don't know, Six gets uh, pretty bad, like Roger Moore. It sounds like a Roger Moore Bond film a little bit. Well, yes. it, it goes like Roger Moore, Isaac Hayes, and then Night on Disco Mountain. Yeah. Do you agree, though, by, by the sixth film, they've completely kind of lost who Ogami Ito is. They start introducing the black magic elements. It's like the series really had strayed so far from the source material at that point. Well, and I just don't get it because, I mean, they released those first four films all in 1972. I mean, what what the hell kind of production schedule is that? Imagine if we had a Star Wars film not every three years like it used to be or every year like it is now, but every three months. You know, that's just insane. <laughs> That's crazy. And I know they had to do it quick because Daigoro was going to grow up, but, but fuck, man, just make them all and then put them on the shelves and then release them every couple of years. I mean, that that's insane to release four films of this series in one year. And then the, yeah. the fifth one comes out in 73, and yeah, by the sixth one, it's just like, okay, yeah, we're not really sure where we're going to go with this one. But I will say, though, that I'll take a quote-unquote bad baby cart film over some of the the quote-unquote good action films that are happening today i mean because i'm still even though yeah he doesn't seem like the same ogami ito i'm still with him in the last three movies and a lot of i'm a horror guy primarily and a lot of horror movies when they run out of stuff to do they just decide to go crazy and do something completely different or just to up the odds and i always like that go down gambling approach and i think that those three movies still have a bit of that cleverness that's stronger in the first three so i would absolutely agree you're watching a fun movie you're watching a movie that's good to watch it's just you're not watching the same artful story well, and you're really missing Kenji Masumi at that point, too, because he's he directed, what was it, one, two, three, and five, I think? Correct, And yeah. so six and four are kind of missing that masterful eye that Masumi had. And again, this guy's crafting these gorgeous films, 
at a breakneck pace. I mean, I don't know how long it took them to make these films before they were released in 72, but I can't imagine that he's, you know, he, I don't imagine he's starting in 1966 and going from there. So he's cranking these things out and making just these beautiful, beautiful works of art. And, you know, we haven't even talked about the editing of this stuff. I mean, you know, I talked about the the quiet moments versus the bloody moments earlier, but there are so many things like just when Ogami Ito, his his specialty when you know his his finishing move as it were is this uh seagull style they call it in one of the movies um the 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 ones that i watched back in the mid 90s they used to call it his seagull style horse killing slash and i love that <laughs> they just call it like seal rio in the uh in the new movies in the new translations but this seagull style horse killing slash that he has where when he gets under the water he'll kind of switch hands with his sword and then you don't know exactly where the sword's going to come up because one, he switched hands and two, the water is distorting exactly where the blade is. And when he does that the first time in the first movie and you get that repeated edit effect of his sword moving, I mean, that just it always takes my breath away. Yeah, that's a beautiful, beautiful edit. I, 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 I love that. That's one of my favorite cuts. Literally. I, I geeked out quite a bit in what I think was the fifth movie when they've got that sort of that flotilla going down the river and he's taking them out boat by boat. And it, it made me very happy as somebody who likes movies where people get smacked with swords. It was that that was five, wasn't it? Uh that was the one with the, the Buddha, right? The the spiritual leader. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's yeah. five. Yeah. And then four was the one with the woman with the sword, is that correct? The the woman with the tattoos? Mm, yes. Okay. Yeah, because three was the prostitute or the lady who was sold as uh... the the woman with the tattoos. I love that moment where you see the candle in the foreground and the guy's telling the story about her getting tattooed, and you see the candle go from being all the way up to being far down later to show yeah. how time has passed. Just wonderful stuff. And then that kind of plays into the fire that comes around the guy's sword when he's kind of trying to hypnotize the woman into looking at his eyes rather than looking at the sword. And her, I mean, so clever. And and this is great because it's almost like a side story. It's like Ogami Ito, he's really only there because he has to kill this woman. He's been hired to assassinate her. He's there as part of this other story of her where she has been brought into this samurai clan and she's really great with these swords and this guy is is uh i think he pretty much ends up raping her and she wants to get revenge on this guy so she goes around she gets these tattoos on her front and back that are going to throw off her opponents there's a sea hag on the back and an imp kind of suckling from her breast on the front and every time one of these samurai guys sees it he just kind of freaks out for a second gives her an opportunity to kill him she cuts off their top knot which means that they can't necessarily go into the next realm, can't go to heaven kind of thing. And then she's just waiting. If she does this over and over and over again, eventually they're going to send the guy who she really wants to get revenge on. I mean, that's a beautiful story. That could be a movie in and of itself. But here we have Ogami Ito as part of this. And I love that he's part of this and he's watching, you know, this final battle take place. And then he has to, because he's been paid, he has to kill this woman. But, then there's even more to that with him taking her back or, you know, she, uh, he cremates her, 
takes the ashes back to her father. I mean, just so many great, great moments to these things. Just this wonderfully tight stories that we have throughout this, even though they they kind of, I don't want to say they meander, but they play out at their own pace. And, and I love them for that. I was yeah, there are a number of moments in these films that could play like short films. I, I've always thought the first 20 minutes of the sixth film is a flawless, flawless episode. Um, and I think that's it's maybe my, my favorite 20 minutes in that whole series because it's just so beautifully told. But one thing I wanted to get back to real quick, just to mention, was the you know we were talking a little bit about the water and the and the fire, and that is one thing that I love about this film, and that I love about the Chambara genre as a whole. Uh, you, how Japanese films tend to have a real kind of reverence for nature, um, not just in samurai films, but I think especially in samurai films, how nature always has a meaning behind it, how it's not just water, it's purification, or it's not just steam, but the soul of the samurai. And I think that's something that I, I think more artists should try and take from the genre and, and look at the lone wolf cub films and what they do so well is communicating the meaning of what they're framing you know there's it's not just them fighting in a field or fighting in water that those elements have significance to the narrative and i think that's something people tend to pass up um a little too often and something this series does especially well well and in traditional zen style what's being proposed or what's being put out as symbolic is very simple and at the same time very complex they don't you know the authors of this work don't try to make it overly complicated or overly cute. They they put the water there, and we're allowed to go as deep or as shallow as we want to. Absolutely. You could just watch this movie or these movies for the geysers of blood. Yeah, no problem. But there is so much more to it that I even when it comes to repeated viewings, it's like I've probably watched this series of films. I don't know, uh, at least a dozen times over the last, say, 12 years, maybe a little bit more. And, and they're wonderful wells to go back to because you always pick up more and you can see more and you experience more of these films. And then with this latest incarnation with the Blu-ray release, I mean, th- th- what I was seeing on VHS was beautiful at the time what i see now with the restored picture is even more beautiful and i just love how great these films look and the picture quality is just flawless to me yeah and criterion did a stunning job with this particular release uh, especially um I, they they've honestly never looked better and there's some special features on there, which I know I'll be I'll be going back to often. Well, yeah. Well, special features, having a, a fully restored version of Shogun Assassin <laughs> is pretty yeah. special as well. Because, I mean, really, for a lot of years, that was just a crappy VHS that you could pick up at your local store. I mean, there wasn't tender, loving care ever given to that film because it was kind of seen as a, a minor work. I right. did want to talk about those really quick because... So I knew about Shogun Assassin. I watched the Lone Wolf and Cub films. And then one day I was in this blockbuster out in Oak Park, Michigan. 
and I'm going through their martial arts section, and there was this movie, and I couldn't believe it. I was just like, it was called Lupine Wolf, and I'm like, what the fuck is this Lupine Wolf? Well, first off, it's a ridiculous title, you know, Lupine Wolf. <laughs> it's like, what's it going to be, like a porcine pig or an ursine bear or something? And it was just like, what? An equine horse? It's like, Lupine Wolf? What the fuck are you talking about? But I took it home. And here it is. It's the third movie of the Lone Wolf and Cub movies redubbed into English. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I also found out that it was not only was it released as Lupine Wolf, it was also released as Lightning Swords of Death, which I've actually got a poster of it. I can see it from where I'm sitting right now. And it's fantastic. There's a great tagline on it that says, Raise a Kung Fu fist against Ogami Ito and he'll chop it off. And then, of course, that was released uh, as Shogun Assassin 2, and they called it right. Shogun Assassin 2, Lightning Swords of Death. So it's funny, if you watch, uh, I didn't realize that they had gone in and redubbed 4, 5, and 6 as well. So there's Slashing Blades of Carnage, Five Fistfuls of Gold, and Cold Road to Hell as Shogun Assassin 5. And it's so funny to me that since they took one and moved it into two, there's only five Shogun Assassin films, but there's six of the Wolf and Cub films. Right. Yeah, I love the Shogun Assassin films because I said at the beginning, that's how I came to Lone Wolf and Cub. Uh, so I, I can appreciate them. But one of the things that they do, which drives me nuts, and it's why I have such a hard time going back and rewatching them, is that they removed critical scenes to, to who Daigoro is. They, there's a scene in the first film where they're, uh, somebody's hitting morning bells to muffle the sounds of footsteps. So those bells, that, the ringing of the bells has significance to Daigoro because that's when his mother died. And later on, I think in the third film, he hears, or it might be the fourth film, where he hears the bells and he gets scared. So he runs away from Ogami Ito and hides. And they're separated for a long time. And that happens a couple different times in the series. And if you were to just watch Shogun Assassins and pick it up from there, you'd have no idea why those bells are so terrifying to Daigro. And there's a, there's a couple other examples that are like that to where it's just, it, they've so shifted what the narrative is, which is even like with the Shogun versus the head of a, the Yagyu clan, uh, how they switch that. You know, there's, there's some pretty serious narrative errors that they create, um, which make it tough to, to rewatch. I came to this, you know, much more recently, and so I watched the six movies, and I really liked them. And so I was looking around at the other stuff, and I, I started watching Shogun Assassin, and I have to admit... Really quickly, it came up. Nope, it just didn't feel right. It was like seeing an actor or something you really enjoyed in a commercial. I, I did not like the tone of it. <laughs> yeah, and it's. I, I think Shogun Assassin on its own, I can, I can watch or I can tolerate, but by no means can I go beyond that. And I will always go back if I've seen Shogun Assassins. I will always go back within hours to watch the other films because you just want to you want that full experience it's just such a annotated version well and they did a smart thing like i said before by taking two because two has the the uh, uh the benton ray brothers yeah. who are just these amazing assassins what is it one's got a club one's got a claw and one's got these like metal fist things right. that he puts on the lords of death they are Oh, God, they are amazing. And then that, that scene, 
I mean, this is one of those moments. This is this is probably my favorite moment of the what, films, the even though. Oh yeah, that yep. the, the battle in the sand. But when Ogami Ito slices the one guy's neck, and he sits there, and you hear the wind whistling, and he's talking about oh, yeah. how he's always wanted to slice someone's neck like that just to hear that sound because he had heard about it before. And in one of the uh, the subtitles that I've read before, he says, how absurd it is that this is my own neck. And when he rolls down that sand dune and just blood sprays everywhere after that, oh, so satisfying. Yeah, and there's even a scene just before that fight um, takes place where one of the lords, the Lord of Death with the claw, when he sticks it into the sand and you see that blood start to rise up oh, in the sand. God. That's, I mean, that is spectacular filmmaking. Because mm-hmm. you have no idea what's happening. And right. He just does that and you're like, what is happening? And when he pulls that guy out and the guy's just screaming his head off. Uh, I mean, God, number two, I think, is the one that begins with Ogami Ito just walking down the road, pushing the baby cart. And here comes this guy running at him, full tilt. Yep. And Ogami Ito goes to, to cut this guy, you know, basically split his head open. The guy catches the blade, calls to his buddy, who we haven't necessarily seen. His buddy's been running directly behind him. He jumps up on the first guy's shoulder, who's still there holding this sword, basically in his head as he's dying. And the other guy jumps up, and Ogami Ito has to really quick grab. And I love this kind of time shift that they're doing, because the guy's jumping in slow motion as we see Ogami Ito moving in regular motion, as to say how fast he is. He grabs one of the handles of the baby cart, sticks out the blade from it, sticks this guy as he's falling through the air about to assassinate him. And by that, he's dispatched these two guys. I mean, just these, there are moments like that just spread throughout these films. And there are all just wonderful moments of carnage. Yeah. And you also get a good, another good POV scene in that scene that you described. You get the POV from the the basket, which just kind of adds, I just, I think that's the first POV in the, in the series. And it just thrusts the viewer into that moment. It's just beautiful. I will say that the movies are not that easy to watch if you have a real thing about rape, because rape happens in almost every single one of these movies. Rape is a major motivator for so much of what happens in the Lone Wolf and Cub movies. And it's just, it's not fun to watch at all, especially in 2017, but... Yeah, it's that's that's always the moment where I'm just like, oh, fuck, another rape. They rape people all the time. It is a great motivator for these characters. I mean, the one guy, the the character we haven't really talked about in three, who is this other disgraced samurai. I mean, he's going to take care of business when one of his other Ronin buddies, quote unquote buddies, he does not like any of these other Ronin that he's working with. When they go and they rape this poor woman who's walking down the road and he has to basically murder one of them. He's just like, okay, tell me who, tell me who's going to die. Who's going to pay for this crime. Mm -hmm. And he dispatches one of the guys and that sets us off with his character and everything. But yeah, there's just, there's a, there's a rape in almost every single movie. Yeah, and you know, on the flip side of that, I was thinking that there's a, there's also not a whole lot of sensuality. I mean, you have a moment on, I think, the boat where he's trying to stay warm. And so, and that's kind of, I guess you could say it's maybe a sensual scene. But outside of that, across those six films, yeah, there's a ton of rape, there's a ton of nudity, but 
there's really no sensuality. I've always thought that was a little interesting that they kind of stay away from that completely. The only real sensual moment that I can think of is when he's having sex with a prostitute in the first movie. And it, but it is very, very clinical, I'd have to say. So maybe yeah, that's well, he's being, for, it's, he's being forced to. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I love that moment afterwards when she is very enamored with Ogami Ito and the guys that are in this place with her who are uh, our prisoners, her fellow prisoners are just like, oh, you know, get over it. What's the big deal? Yada, yada, yada. And she's like, listen, can you get it up if somebody's threatening to kill you? You know, I don't think so. This guy, he's a real man. He's a real samurai. I don't remember this very clearly, but the woman with the tattoos, I felt like there was her body and then her body had been attacked and she had been assaulted and then she starts putting on the tattoos and reclaiming her body and becoming instead of the victim becoming i mean it's not until she reaches ito that she's killed like i thought that she basically it was kind of what quentin tarantino was trying to do in um the kill bill movies in some ways and you know i know mike you would probably be surprised to think of quentin borrowing from another source and that's one of the things when i try to explain these movies to people who have never heard of them before i'm just like well there was that moment in kill bill 2 where the daughter is watching this movie because she's watching shogun assassin but even with that it's just like no, no, I don't remember that. It's just like, oh fuck, what? How can I make people understand what these movies are about? You know, and that yeah. there's some other ways, and we'll talk about those in the second half of the show. But I do want to talk about real quick before we we make the jump that there was a follow-up. I mean, there have been many follow-ups. We've talked about the television show, and there have been two versions of the television show. And the television show, from what I understand, is what stopped the movies, that Wakayama Tamasaburo was just like, "Mm, either I'm in the television show, there is no television show, I'm not really interested in doing a television show, or basically I will never play this character again. And they didn't put him in the television show. They went ahead with the television show. They didn't put him in the television show. And so he never played the character again. So it was picked up by another actor who, to your point, Jeff, portrays Ogami Ito more like the character in the manga. So he, he looks more like the guy. He acts more like the character. And so that was good. There was another version of the TV show. We can talk more about the TV show later if we want to. But I did want to kind of say that there was also been... There was a standalone movie that was made in, what was it, 92, which was kind of this, like, I don't know, almost like an art house interpretation of Ogami Ito. I can't say that I necessarily like it. Some people call it a handful of sand. Um, it, it, I don't know. Did you guys get a chance to see that one? Because for me, it's it's almost a tough watch sometimes. It, it was a brutal watch for me. Uh, you just, you know, I those characters are so... It almost sounds stupid to say, but like cinematically important to me, you know, like they, they have resonance to me. I, you know, I, I, I love these characters and to see them kind of dealt in this kind of almost secondhand way. Um, it just feels incomplete. And I think the story is kind of a mess. Uh, as far as I remember, there's no ball and sword. It's right. just this moment of like, I can't kill you, Daigoro. You're going to have to become a demon with me basically. And the guy who plays Ogami Ito, is totally the opposite of Thomas Saburo in that he is 
beautiful. He's a handsome, handsome man. And to me, has no business playing Okamito. Exactly. Just like, you should be out like modeling male underwear or something. You should not be this guy who is on the road, you know, to, between heaven and hell. You should really not do that. And then they change Yagyu's origin, and it's suddenly his brothers instead of his sons. And they do have a, the ending. I mean, that's one of the good things about the movie is it is standalone, so it takes you from the moment of betrayal all the way up to them fighting in the sand kind of thing. But yeah, it just, it just doesn't, doesn't work for me that way. But then, yeah, there was this 19, what was it? 1989, which some people call uh, an assassin on the road to hell or baby carton purgatory. Uh, and it's uh, Hideki Takahashi playing Ogami Ito. And then, Thomas Saburo Wakayama comes back, but he comes back as Yagyu Retsudo, which was just so strange to see the guy who played Ogami Ito for so many years now donning the, the white wig and the white beard and playing his mortal enemy. Right. <laughs> but what do you think about that one? So I could almost repeat what I said about the other one. Cause I, uh, but yeah, it's it just doesn't feel the like they, they understood the, the characters. It's a little more fun. It's a little more up-tempo um, than the 92 film. But it's still not the same. They're kind of trying to recapture magic that, that they, 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 they couldn't quite grasp. Um, and I don't know if it was a funding issue. Um, I don't know what the, what the intent of the film was, if they were going to, to try and launch another show or another series from this film, a television series, but it just doesn't, uh, it doesn't ever really click. I'm not sure what kind of relationship you two had with your fathers, but my father was not very expressive and you had to kind of look past to get the idea of like, if you're getting praised or if you're you know, getting challenged on something and Ito does that so well, where you can see his face and you're guessing along with, should I be happy? Should I be scared? Should I be worried? And his face is such a unique canvas for that. You know, then if you replace him with somebody whose face is just pretty, you lose all that facial expression information. And it loses its cultural heritage. It's just, it's not the same. To me, those six movies are all about one man and his ability to kind of hold up the center of it. Now, I do like what what I would consider the seventh movie. I do like Assassin on the Road to Hell because of Thomas Burrow coming back and mostly because it does wrap up the story, even though it wraps it up from differently from the manga, I have to say. Right, because right. even though uh, Ogami Ito is not necessarily in the best of shape, um, he's still alive at the end of the television uh, movie, the, the wrap-up movie. But we've seen him in that that state before because i think he's he's pretty shaky at the end of i think three and i want to say maybe five it is but there are times where you're just like wow he's he's really not doing too well and we've seen him in bad shape like even in in three after all those female assassins were after him right dagro's kind of nursing him back oh i love that scene too that is wonderful when dagro's down there trying to get the water in his hands and he finally puts it in his mouth and you know spits it back out into his dad's mouth this is just wonderful but um yeah i kind of like what i would consider seven but it's not one that I go back to all the time. And plus, it's, you know, now I talked about the, you know, the way that these movies are kind of vignettes and they're the same stories just kind of replayed and everything. So, like, if you watch the television series, you're like, oh, okay, that's part of 
the first movie plus part of the fifth movie plus a little bit of the third movie because of the way that they would take these Koyuki stories from the original manga and either play them out more in order or or would kind of remix them again. So it's just like, okay, so you're seeing all these different pieces and parts. And the seventh movie, the, uh, the Assassin on the Road to Hell, it's like, okay, this is totally the fifth Lone Wolf and Cub movie, the whole idea of these five different people who are going to give Ogama Ito different pieces of the puzzle to for his next assassination contract. You know, it's 500 Ryu to hire Ogami Ito, and in this one particular storyline, they have five different people each give him 100 Ryu, and they each try to challenge him in a different way, whether it's the guy who tries to poison him or the guy who's pretending to be fishing or all these different kind of things. And finally, you know, he... he gets all of the information and is able to go on his way and fulfill his contract. And once Ogami Ito gets a, a contract, he kind of, you know, the one thing that we haven't said at all during this episode is spaghetti Western. And that's what these movies kind of remind me of a lot. You know, actually you, you said film noir mm-hmm. for me, there's a lot of spaghetti Western to this stuff. And I can see film noir and spaghetti Western kind of speaking to one another because once he gets a contract, he's kind of like, um, you know, angel eyes in, um, the good, the bad and the ugly where he's going to fulfill that contract. You can take out another contract with him If you're being uh, assassinated by Ogami Ito, you could hire him to kill the person who put out the contract on you and he'll fulfill that contract. No problem. But yeah, he is very loyal when it comes to, if I take the money, I'm going to kill someone. Or many someones, sometimes. <laughs> or everyone. You could be like the end of Lone Wolf and Cub 3, where you finally break out the machine gun. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I, one thing that's interesting is the... Um at this point, you know, samurai films really became a mashup of of all different genres, um, from film noir to western. Um, you can really see that on display in uh, the ending of the of the fourth film, uh, of the fourth Lone Wolf and Cub film. I mean, that's just it, it's so cinematic in a way that that Sergio Leone would would envision, um, and it really does lean on that. One question I have was, when did you see the um, the 87 film? Did you see that pretty far removed from the original Lone Wolf and Cub films? Or? I must have seen it probably, I would say probably at least two or three years after I watched the first six films. So they're still pretty fresh at that point. So I'm just wondering if what the spatial, because I, I just saw that film maybe a year ago. So, you know, those okay. characters in those films had plenty of time to kind of ingrain themselves uh, in my in my cinematic habit. So I was curious if... Well, I will say, when I watch these movies, I watch one through six, and then I usually stop. Yeah. Uh, every once in a while, I'll pop that one on. Uh, I watched that 92 one a couple times back when I was writing an article about the Lone Wolf and Cub films. But that that's about it. I, that's one I don't go back to. And yeah, I don't go back to what I consider seven very often. Um, I'm mostly fine with what we were talking about before with Ogami Ito and Daigoro just skating or sledding off into the white you know, <laughs> mist of the, the mountains, and that's it. That's the last we see of him. I'm really okay with that. I know it would kill a lot of people today where it's just like, oh my god, an open-ended series, we can't have that. We have to do a reboot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, It'd be like calling it quits after Empire Strikes Back. Which I would have been fine with. I don't need any fucking Ewoks. <laughs> Alright, on that note, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Mark Walkow, who is the producer of a lot of the extras on the uh, Lone Wolf and Cub 
Seth from Criterion, and we'll hear from him right after these messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. After Movie Diner promo, take one. John Wayne here from the Brannigan Podcast. Has anyone seen the full Vernon? No, try again. Sweaty Vernon here from the... No, come on. Hey, how's it going? I'm Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast. Hoping you'll tune in to After Movie Diner. It's my favorite podcast. Better, but also at the same time completely useless. Um, try and mention the movie reviews, the interviews with independent film directors, things like that. Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast here. Hoping you'll turn in for a... It's tune-in. Christ. <laughs> Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast. Hoping you'll turn in. Ah, <laughs> turn in. How hard is it just to plank the damn show? Do it right or I'm going to come down there and nail your face to the fridge. Listen up, folks. Matt Ringler here from Schlock Treatment. I want to tell you about a great podcast, The After Movie Diner. There's plenty of pie and everything's delicious, especially the host, the sweaty Vernon. No, 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 no. I mean, he didn't even mention that the podcast is available every Monday at amdpodcast.blogspot.com and iTunes. Idiot. Wife Jessica, I have an idea. What's that, husband Dustin? As you know, we love movies. Yes, dear, I know. But we also love podcasts. I'm aware, my love. And then there's this other part of us that really loves movie commentary tracks. Get to the point, sweetheart. Well, if we made a movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program, it would certainly be the best married couple movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program on the internet, right? Without doubt. But whatever would we call it? We are the Popcorn Poops. Popcorn Poops is a weekly podcast hosted by married couple Dustin and Jessica Kramer. That's us. Each week we choose a movie based on a monthly theme and then we sit down and record a syncable commentary track as we watch the movie. But what makes Popcorn Poops special is that you don't have to sync up our podcast to enjoy the show. So you can listen to us like you would any other standalone podcast. On our show, we like to talk about theory, story structure, genre conventions, and trivia with a healthy dose of dick jokes. Gotta have the dick jokes. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play Music. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for frequent updates about the show, including our weekly movie still identification game. Visit us on the web at popcornpoops.com. We'll be waiting for you, and not in a creepy way. Okay, kind of a creepy way. Yeah, okay, fair warning. My name is Mark Walco, and I am a... I've done a lot of things in the home video 
Sense Film World. But currently, I do a lot of DVD and Blu-ray special feature, primarily for Japanese films and primarily for classic Japanese films, genre films and things like that. I do that for Arrow Video, uh, more or less full-time, and then I do also special projects with Criterion companies. Your name has kind of just always been associated with Japanese cinema for me. How did you first get into Japanese cinema? Yeah, it's very flattering to hear. Thank you. Um, it's something, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Japanese cinema, and I think the work that I've been lucky enough to be able to be involved with for Japanese movies, uh, contemporary movies too, some stuff I did when I was um, a film programmer and involved in distribution. But I, I've just always been a fan. It came out of that. Um, I, you know, I used to watch all the scenes that everybody watched. I grew up in the 70s, Ultraman and Godzilla films on television and Speed Racer and you name it. And that progressed into watching Kurosawa films and other samurai films. And eventually, this was like after college, I started watching uh, Yakuza movies and living in L.A. and saw the great screening series of Yakuza films. And just from there, it transformed itself into work. I guess my I, my friends started working just in home, in home video and would like by my own pressuring the companies that I worked for saying I want to work on Japanese projects so they would have distribution license for something on Laserdisc or DVD and I said let me produce a special edition and you know from it went from there it's kind of really been a self created career. What were some of your earliest titles that you worked on in that capacity? I used to work for Image Entertainment uh, out in Los Angeles back when they were still doing Laserdisc. It was right on the cusp of Laserdisc to DVD when I got into it there. They were doing, uh, they had liked some titles from the American Cinematic, and among them were Female Convict Scorpion, which is what it was called then, Jailhouse 41, Black Tight Killers, two Koji Wakamatsu films. And those were ones that I, you know, we didn't really do a lot of new stuff. Somebody provided us with some interviews from Japanese filmmakers overseas uh, that have been taped by someone else. We've been putting it together, collating it, writing text, you know, finding liner notes writers, which was Chris D. Chris, uh, he was a programmer at the American Cinema Tech at the time, punk musician, writer, and he's been like a mentor for me in Japanese cinema. So, yeah, those are the first four. And it's funny that the most recently, the one of the most recent things I did for Arrow was the Female Prisoner Scorpion, as we're now calling it, series on Blu-ray. So it kind of always just comes around one way or another. I'm glad that you and Christy know each other because your name, his name, and then Patrick Macias, those three names always seem to go with Japanese cinema in my head. Mm-hmm. Those are two good guys to associate with. I mean, yeah, Christy's written a lot on it. Patrick's obviously written a lot on it. I don't remember where I met him, but it was a long time ago. And he was, uh, you know, obviously he was doing stuff with Asian cinema then. We met and became friends and obviously he's got another guru, but he's done a lot of stuff now. He's mostly doing Japanese pop culture anime. Which is a shame because I miss his writing on Japanese live action stuff. How did you get involved with doing the special features for Lone Wolf and Cub? I used to work at Criterion full time and had been a production manager there, among um, other things, and really wasn't hired to produce stuff there, although I had done some special features production in my previous job. So I came into Criterion to do really, you know, support stuff on the production side. <laughs> And working with distributors, but wound up being allowed to produce some special content. I think the first one I worked on was Videodrome, and that was because I was just interested in the title. I co-produced that with a person who had been uh, assigned to do most of the Cronenberg stuff going back into the laser just stage. So I did stuff for Videodrome, and then um, some other titles there, and wound up continuing doing freelance stuff when I left Criterion, like House and some other titles there. But then um, 
you know, I'd always kept contact with the company for a long time, even though I had uh, left and gone on to do freelance special features production for other companies. Um, so when, you know, I had a pretty good idea of what's coming up on the schedule and when, you know, I knew that they had licensed those through contacts there and the producer of this, the, um, the Lady Snowblood set was the same guy who produced the um, Lone Wolf and Cub set. And he also, it's kind of his, he gets assigned to it like this, you know, like sort of play stuff. He had done Three Outlaw Samurai and things like that. So when this producer, Curtis, got that uh, assignment, he reached out to me and said, you know, is there anything you can do? What else, what can you shoot in Japan? What can you get to? So for Lady, Lady Snowblood, we got, we reached out just directly to the office of um, Kazuo Koike, the the writer of the original manga. And when we shot the interview with him, we knew that we were doing Lone Wolf, you know, a year later. So we just talked to him about both titles. Simple as that. So it was really a combination of me pushing them to let me work on more titles that are, you know, things that I really like. And then I have some ability to contribute to because of my connections in Japan. And also just them knowing that that's up my alley. So a little bit of both. And then, you know, obviously we did uh, some other stuff as well. We did the interview with the, uh, one of the screenwriters of Lady Snowblood at that time, and then we did an interview with the biographer of director Kenji Mizumi when we did Home uh, Open Cup. So I would love to, would have loved to have done more, but unfortunately, on both those titles, a lot of the principal people behind them are deceased. And um, luckily, we got this French documentary that we produced with the DVD set there that interviewed a lot of the people who are no longer with us. We tried to get Mako Kaji for Lady Snowblood as well as for the version of the female prisoner scorpion discs, but booked her and her manager a lot, but in the end, just uh, were turned down. She just didn't feel like uh, she wanted to do interviews to support the films. Would you say you're fluent in Japanese? I'm not fluent in Japanese. I can get by, you know, in a lot of situations. Um, and I can conduct interviews in Japanese, and I translate Japanese to English for some work, as well as... Uh, you know, from my regular job doing special features production, but I can hold my own in a conversation, but, you know, talking to a, a stranger about politics or, you know, economics or, you know, something like that, I, I can't get, you know, there's a lot of vocabulary that I wouldn't know. Um, similarly, like reading a newspaper, the because of a variety of kanji that I'm not aware of. I did definitely get in, I, I started learning Japanese because I wanted to be able to watch Japanese films without subtitles, which I can more or less do now, depending on the film. But, um, yeah, definitely. My interest in Japan started with movies and television, and then uh, the language stuff came less than 10 years ago. I have to tell you that the box set from Criterion looks absolutely gorgeous. That looks great. Yeah, I really like it, too. I think they did a nice job on the transfers. I'm glad there's not none of the controversy that there was for Lady Snowblood or for uh, Female Prisoner Scorpion. There's been a lot of talk about the subtitles for the Lone Wolf and Cub films over the years. How do you feel Criterion did? To be honest, I haven't watched any of the films all the way through yet on the Criterion disc because I've seen them so many times. The first thing I did when I got the, the check disc was watch Shogun Assassin because I love it so much. Um, so I haven't looked at the subtitles, but um, generally speaking, they do a really good job at Criterion, I think. I should check it out now that I know that it's somebody new who did the other subtitles. Certainly, they'd be different from the anime ego versions and probably a little less um, involved than they tended to. I think personally put too much information into their subtitles, you know, in an effort to be more direct and accurate in the translation. And Criterion, I think, tends to go for something that is more um, natural in English than, than necessarily, you know, 100% accurate. What are you working on these days? 
Right now, um, we're finishing up uh, Mike Takashi Mike box set of the Dead or Alive films for Arrow, and that's nice because those are not on Blu-ray anywhere in the world, like the Shinjuku, uh, the, the Block Society trilogy that uh, is coming out next month. Uh, I've seen those transfers, and they look great. Shinjuku Triad's a little rough because it was such a it was the first film made he, he made for a major studio there, and it was shot very low budget. But the other two look fabulous and uh with some nice extras on that and then doa is after that and we should look great and blu-ray premiere for all of that we are working on a batch of uh, another batch of toei uh studio titles about 12 of them that uh Arrow licensed this year for release in 2017 so i'd done a bunch of interviews for those on my last trip to japan and we're just starting to put together some packages for those so can't say what any of them are yet. None of them have been announced, but they should be announced fairly soon. I think one is going to be announced beginning of January for an April release. So the Toei Batch is a nice mix of titles that had released on DVD in the U.S. and the U.K., as well as some stuff that never has had release outside of Japan, which is great. If there's one movie or maybe series of movies that you could work on, what would it be? They've been on DVD um, overseas with subtitles. and There's been some Hong Kong discs, but I think the... I wish... I mean, I mean, really pushing every company that I work with to to license more titles from uh, director of house, Nobuhiko Obayashi, because I think his stuff's just amazing. And there's very few filmmakers like him um, who worked, you know, in the seventies and the eighties, but also are still working today. Even just contemporary stuff. Is good. I really have difficulty just selling some of the films, but there's some that are very close to house that were made right after that for, for uh, Katakawa pictures, um, like people who left their time that get some theatrical screenings here, but have never had a video. I'd love to see those come out. Um, making stuff that's a little more obscure. Um, love to see... I'm always up for more Kinji Fukasaku, but I think a lot of his notable stuff has come out on DVD in the U.S. at some point. Um, his Wolves, Pigs, and Men is an amazing film that I've been really pushing to get out onto a better home video version, which has never been out. Apart from the like the 1964 film he did, and it's really the first movie. It's like Mickey's Shinji Tribe Society. This is Mickey's career. This is to Fukusaka's career. Wolf's Things and Men, because it really is like his first like, movie as a creator. You know, that he really feels like it's something that he continued doing for the rest of his career. Whereas all the stuff before Wolf's Things and Men, in Fukusaka's case and Shinji Tribe and Mickey's case, are, are, there's some good movies there, but they all feel a little scattershot. So I think that one's a really important one for his career. I'd also love just to see more, I mean, I like the, the Girl Gang movies, the Sikivan movies, which have had, some of them have had release here, some of them haven't. But it's a big series. Um, there's always lots of toy exploitation to come out. And it's, the, the, the bar of quality is so high on a lot of the series that I'd love to see more of that stuff come out just to blow people's minds in the U.S. and the U.K. with uh, some of the stuff that, the company was doing, you know, as, as more or less mainstream releases. They were definitely, especially in the uh, late 70s, pushing the buttons, trying to, you know, push the envelope as much as they could. Apparently, we have a mutual friend in Josh Johnson. How did you get involved with Rewind This? With Rewind This, they were just looking for somebody to do some, uh, some interesting people in Japan. They were looking for people to do some, uh, some to hook people up with it to hook them up with interviewees in Japan. Um, and they did hook up with somebody locally there to take them around and get them interviews. Um, but we wound up getting them. I wound up getting a couple interviews. I think the biggest one was uh, anime director Mamoru Oshii, who was the mentor of a director friend of mine and very close to him. So I just asked this friend, could they do it? And he said, sure. 
he was actually out drinking with Oshie at the time, and he said, "Sure, just call my office." <laughs> it wasn't even like we had to submit a formal request. So that was that was great. Sometimes you get lucky like that. What was Kazuo Koike like to interview? Koike was fine. He's um he was we did the interviews for Koike's uh you know for Lonely Coven Lady Snowblood at I think it was his daughter's home in Rapongi in this very kind of behind the skyscrapers, seemingly exclusive community. I mean, obviously the guy has money given all the things that he's published in Japan. Um, but he's, he's in his seventies, maybe late seventies. He's still very active. He's super active on Twitter. Um, I had to mute him in fact, just because he just tweets constantly about stuff. And I can read the tweets in Japanese for the most part, but a lot of them are like about golf or about drinks and just, he's constantly online. Which is nice. It's nice to see somebody who's engaging in any way of communication like that. He runs a, you know, he he, he runs a publishing house or used to uh, art school, um, just everything. I, I saw him speak in Japan once, also before screening at one of the local movies, and uh, he's fascinating. He, my one of my questions to him was, what kind of specific research do you do? Because there's all this really, you know, very deep, deeply specific technical detail in a lot of his comics, but then also in the films, he wrote the screenplays for the Little Cup film, so, so translate directly to that. And he, you know, like, what kind of sword and the and currency in feudal Japan and, you know, government official, just every tiny little detail seems well recent. And he, he doesn't do any. He just remembers everything he reads. He, he you know, he would he'd read about weapons when he was a kid, and he remembered it and just would pull that out of his brain when he was writing the other uh, comics. So... He's a pretty remarkable guy. Um, I'd love to see more of his stuff get translated in the U.S. And I really would love to see um, Criterion had put him out, or sorry, Home Vision had put them out on DVD back in the day. And I, I'm not sure if Criterion is the right to them, but I would love to produce a supplement for a uh, a box set of the Razor, the um, the uh, Goyo Kiba series starring Wakayama's brother Shintaro Katsu, who played Tatoichi, about a feudal Tokyo um, cop, basically. Uh, inspector, uh, who's the only honest guy on the police force there. It's a three-part series based on the manga about him. You know, it's a, they're cop movies, basically, with very 70s soundtracks and feel like toy exploitation, even though they were made for Toho and Katsu Productions. But the unique part of the series is that this guy, uh, Katsu's character, this cop, has a giant penis, and he uses it to interrogate people and you know, each movie begins with him training it in a dojo, especially outfitted equipment to train his penis. And he's kind of known for this. Um, they're, they're amazing movies, and I think these are still available out there any day and so, so forth. But we'd love to upgrade those to Blu-ray with some supplements.
All right, we're back, and we were talking about the Lone Wolf and Cub saga. I swear, man, I, I bought the 2002 TV series off of eBay years and years ago, and I could have sworn they said they had subtitles. And so when I finally sat down and I was going to just do a Lone Wolf and Cub marathon and watch all the TV shows, going to watch the original 74 series, I was going to watch the new series, and I finally popped that thing in. No subtitles. I was so mad. <laughs> I cannot find subtitles for that 2002 series at all. And I could watch it without subtitles because it's the same stories as the others, other ones. But I was just like, yeah, no, this really isn't doing it for me. So I haven't seen the 2002 series, but or yeah, it's 2002. I keep thinking 2004. But I have seen the 70s series. And I have to say it's pretty damn good. It's fantastic. It's a, it's a lot of watching because I think it's twenty, like it's twenty seven episodes in season one and two and three or twenty six. I think twenty, not twenty seven. There's a lot of story going on there, but it's so well done. I would say it's a little dry in in parts, but uh, but yeah, it's it's a great interpretation of the manga. But there are those moments where. It's the stories that we haven't seen already done in the first six movies. Right. And those are usually the moments where I'm just like, oh, wow, this is fantastic. Because we're, we're, I'm not experiencing the same thing. It's not like deja vu in these cases. There's one story. I remember watching the series uh, probably, again, late 90s and then rewatching it again recently. There's a story about a guy who is one of these um, – I think they call him like – five league messengers or something like that, where they will have a little box over their shoulder. You see them kind of in the background of a lot of the Lone Wolf and Cub movies. There are these guys who just haul ass with a little box on a, on a stick and they're carrying messages and they just run as fast as they possibly can for, I guess, five leagues or three leagues, whatever it is. And then they, pass it on to the next guy. And it's this whole relay system of these guys passing these messages back and forth. And there's one story in the TV show where it's this guy and he's had sex with this woman and they have a baby and the baby died. And she's trying to stop this guy because he never gave the baby a name. And because of that, the baby is basically in purgatory and that episode was so powerful that I saw it in the late 90s, and I could remember it almost shot for shot when I rewatched it again just a few weeks ago. I was just like, this is that episode. This is fantastic. Really, really great stuff. And to me, I don't see Lone Wolf and Cub as being plot-driven as much as I see it being episodic and character-driven and, and mood-driven and symbolism-driven. And so that's why I'd rather see different scenarios than retelling the same myth and origin story like Batman, where you right. always get the parents dying. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. And yeah, at least exactly. you just get a zombie dying. Yeah, and I think those moments, those, those uh, you know, moments where it feels a little slow, the television series, I think it has to do with the, um, you know, just the different culture. The, the Japanese culture is so kind of um, insular that a lot of the subplots and references, you know, don't make sense to a Western audience, but those are few and far between because on the whole, I mean, every single one of those episodes is, is amazingly well-crafted. Well, you're always in danger when it comes to like the subtitles for these things. Mark talked about that. And in the interview is there's the danger of over-explanation, you know, cause I've seen at least three or four, let's see, there was the Eureka box. There was the anime ego 
version. There was a VHS version that I watched a long time ago. Then there's the Criterion version. So I've seen four different sets of subtitles for these movies. And some of them will give you explanations for terms, like when they would say Seal Rio style, it would mm-hmm. say Seagull style next to it, or just like different interpretations of things. Sometimes they'll translate a sign and other ones won't like at the beginning of two when those guys are running at ogami ito i think they translate what the guy has on his uh on his front it says or on his hat it says light dark or something like that so there are there are varying levels of information so there are some where they're almost too chatty and they'll try to tell you everything <laughs> when you're watching it it's just like uh and then there's others where you don't get enough information so you're just like well why would they care about this and what's the purpose of this thing that they're doing i think criterion does a pretty good job of treading that line and letting us know but at the same time i don't know if i'm necessarily the right person to say that having seen all these different versions, I think I might be carrying more to these movies than they're necessarily giving me. So uh, Axel, I want to ask you, did you understand everything that was going on? Did they give you enough explanation in the subtitles? I've learned more from this episode. Um, The subtitles gave me enough, but I don't want to sound cavalier or, or ignorant, but I didn't need to know too much. I knew there was this man, Ito, that I felt a strong connection to as a hero, and I knew there were these forces aligning against him. And beyond that, like I wasn't as concerned about the... I knew he worked for the Shogun. I didn't know too much about the hierarchy of it. I was okay simply watching him go through episode by episode as this character kind of holding himself like one step away from hell with his son. And so, you know, it was interesting hearing you add more to it. And I think, you know, I I found myself thinking, I wish I knew more about Japanese history. You know, I wish I kind of knew more about Japanese communication in terms of, like I said, I was interested in facial expressions quite a bit during this. But to me, I think you can watch Lone Wolf and Cub just completely in Japanese, and you're going to get it because it's such a visual bit of storytelling. The Animigos set was uh, the first time I had it on DVD, and they obviously kind of overloaded the the screen with information. Um, and I find that to be pretty distracting. Um, so I think the Criterion set's probably my, my favorite set that's come out because it's the cleanest transfer. The subtitles look great. Um, they're not pounding the screen with constant information and, and uh, meaning. You know, I remember there's one scene uh, on the Animago set where they, where it was customary for the wealthy to scrub like some kind of root on their teeth. So their teeth looked black and the Animago is like describing the, what the process was and everything. It's just, it's so overloaded with information where distracting. So um, yeah, the criterion set is great. I'll be selling off the Animago set. Yeah. You almost need to have like, two sets of subtitles, the verbose and the right. terse. Yeah. 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 And that, that is only, I, I only remember the one woman in, I think it's Lone Wolf and Cup three, who's got the blacked out teeth. Right. And it's just like, okay, whatever. I mean, I've seen it in other films, so I don't need to know about the tarot root and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. funny. <laughs> wow. Okay. I remember I criticized the subtitles for Lone Wolf and Cub 
uh, the Animago version because the way that they spoke didn't have the same, I don't want to say poetry, but it wasn't as eloquent as it was in the VHS set that I was used to. And the guy who ran Animago actually wrote back to me and was really mad about that because I put that in the article I wrote about the Lone Wolf and Cub movies. I just kind of had like a little footnote at the end, just like, hey, just so you know, these VHS ones were really well translated, at least to me, and the Anime Ego ones seemed a little, you know, terse. And uh, he was not happy about that whatsoever <laughs> that I would criticize the subtitles. Yeah, I know. You know, one of the other things that they do, not to pick on Anime Ego, but is they'll have, if there's two characters on screen, they'll have one set of text being yellow and the other text will be green. So you can kind of differentiate between who's, who's talking if, if you were to need that tool. But then there's a couple of times where they forget to make that transfer. So then all of a sudden everybody's talking in green. But yeah, and I do have to say that there is a company, um, I will link to it on the show notes at projection-boot.com. They just kind of uh, restored the TV. They're working on the TV series. I just picked up the second season of it um, because that was one that I didn't have on DVD. And it's, yeah, it was like nine discs and restored picture quality looks absolutely gorgeous because most of the time you're looking at pretty run-down VHS versions of these. So these are looking really good and even have removable subtitles because most of the time, again, they're burned-in subtitles because a lot of these were shown on... Um, I don't want to say, I don't know if it's Hawaiian television or they were shown in the States, but shown someplace where they had to have subtitles on them. So that's the version that we're still watching of a lot of these Lone Wolf and Cub TV series. I'm just so grateful that they exist and that you can see them. It's just, it's one of those miracles of modern technology where you can still go back and watch this Japanese television series from the seventies and see it in English. And what do we think about Justin Lin directing the remake of this franchise? I don't know. I mean, that was 2012 when they announced that he was going to do it. What really scares me is now, as of June 2016, Stephen Paul uh, acquired the rights. It's funny because I've been trying to get a hold of Stephen Paul for years because he uh, produced a, uh, a movie with, or he might've even directed a movie with Elliot Gould. So I've been trying to get a hold of this guy for the longest time, but he has done some real shit kind of stuff <laughs> over the years. He's the guy who produced the baby geniuses movie. So, oh. or, or sorry, movies. So, so he's super babies, baby geniuses too. Yeah. Yeah. He also produced the Ghost Rider films, say what you will about them, and then he produced that whitewashed version of Ghost in the Shell that has yet to come out. So <laughs> I'm very curious what he would do Good with track these. Record. Yeah. I would hate if suddenly Ogami Ito were this white guy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know who it would be is it would be Bruce Willis, and every fifth or sixth scene he would stop and give a monologue and explain everything and then hug the child and there would be just nothing to it anymore it would be like simple simon or, or yeah. mercury rising <laughs> mercury yeah. rising yeah yeah i was thinking either uh gerard butler gerard butler or liam neeson is who i would oh jesus <laughs> who i would see in those. well i do have to say it was interesting when tom hanks played okami ito 
because yeah. that was strange. I, I had read so Max Allen Collins had done a uh, graphic novel called Road to Perdition, which then ended up being turned into a movie directed by the guy who did uh, American Beauty, Sam Mendes. And I've watched it a couple times now. I'm still not convinced that I like it. I, I every time I watch it, I'm reminded of like Miller's Crossing, and I'd rather go watch Miller's Crossing. There are some interesting moments to it. There's some really good editing to it. It looks gorgeous. Thanks, thank you, Conrad Hall. But I'm not sure if I really like that movie or not. Did you guys get a chance to see Road to Perdition? Well, first of all, I have to say that I believe Max Allen Collins is an Iowan, and as someone who was born in Iowa, we have to recognize that. <laughs> Second of all, to me, that movie was just an excuse for a really good Paul Newman performance and some good scenery, but I I walked out of it feeling nonplussed in general. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think I'm, I may have liked it a little better than, uh, than you guys, but um, it's so... You know, and Mike, I almost think you have it right where you can't quite pick, put your finger on why the film doesn't completely work. And for me, I just always go back to it just feels so profoundly sad at every single turn. There's this kind of this barrier to connecting with that with the film. It's a very dark film. It's shot dark. Some of the best shots um are the moments of of uh light like the end of that uh, of that film is a gorgeous shot but other than that it, it's just it's shot with this gloominess um and so when they try and interject um moments of action or br- some brief moments of levity they just end up not working because there's nothing to really there's no meat on the bones so yeah it's just never really clicked for me either there's one really great montage where the son is learning how to drive and they're going out and they're robbing all the banks of all the mob money. It's almost like a little Charlie Varick moment, you know, and that montage really works for me. The camera is constantly moving from left to right. We're getting the, the way that he is able to handle the car or not as it pulls up to these various banks that his father is robbing. That kind of works for me, but yeah, there's so many other moments. Like the the Jude Law character, who is kind of interesting. He likes to take crime scene photographs, and he likes to kill people and then take photographs. He was kind of an interesting character, but not nearly the badass that I really wanted him to be. That was the whole thing. It's just like this feels like I want I want more from this movie than it's actually giving to me. You almost want more of the father and son aspect. You get you get a lot of that in Lone Wolf and Cub, and you only get little glimpses of it uh, with Road to Perdition. You you mentioned the the scene where he's uh, teaching him how to drive the car. There's also a nice scene when they're in the the cafe and the son's trying to negotiate a, a fee with uh, with the dad with Tom Hanks, and that's a real sweet moment. One thing that the, the manga did was it incorporated the, the original manga of Lone Wolf and Cub incorporated historical events, true historical events that had occurred. And that's something that Max Allen Collins did with the uh, graphic novel of Road to Perdition. And I almost think it needed, it needed that. That's missing from the, the film version uh, of Road to Perdition. I almost think it, it needed that because it needed something else going on, something to take you away from this, you know, as I said, this profound sadness that tends to kind of engulf that film. Well, I felt like all the actors in that were pretty excited or pretty motivated to play a tough guy. 
And I think maybe especially with Tom Hanks with his career at that time. So they're trying too hard. If, In my opinion, when you look at Lone Wolf and Cub, nobody's playing someone who is just this merciless, cold, blank machine, even if they're stoic. You know, there's people that don't want to die. There's people that are scared. There's a lot of human emotions going on there that make you connect to the characters. And everyone in, by the time the kids get killed in Road to Perdition, I mean, who do you care about living? You know who's going to die. You know who's going to live already. It's kind of funny. I've been going back uh, on Netflix and watching all of Bob's Burgers. I I was really sad last night. I actually hit the last episode that's available on Netflix, and I didn't know it was the last episode. So I'm like ready to watch the next one, and it takes me all the way back to the beginning. But there was an episode, and I was so surprised. Like, here I am doing research on Lone Wolf and Cub for the last month and a half. And here's an episode of Bob's Burgers that comes up called Hawk and Chick. And it's basically Bob and, uh, oh, God, the, the daughter with the rabbit ears. They love watching these movies together where there's a samurai, Ronin samurai, and his little girl that he carries on his back. And he's the <laughs> hawk and she's the chick. And they love watching these movies. Yeah. And then they find out that the guy who played Hawk lives in town. So they approach him and want him to like basically be their friend. And he finds, they find out that chick has, is estranged and they have this film festival and they have to like live dub these movies. But Bob and uh, Louise have seen these movies so many times that they're able to repeat all the dialogue. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it was great. I was just like, wow. Okay. I did not expect to have a lone wolf and cub homage in the middle of Bob's burgers. Yeah. Oh man. I'm going to have to check that out. That has to be like season Five or six? I think season five, yeah. Season five, okay, yeah, because I think Netflix only goes up to five with that. Yeah, oh man, that's terrific. And then I never watched Samurai Jack, but I had heard that there was there was Ogami Ito influence on Samurai Jack as well. Yeah, I think those characters actually appear in uh, in an episode. I don't know if they have speaking roles or not, but I know they're they're definitely in the background. And then I have to say, just kind of like you know, throwing this into the stew. The one thing that I was completely gobsmacked by when I was watching this movie, do you guys remember the movie Ultraviolet with, um, oh, yeah, uh, what's her name? Yeah, uh, Mila Jovovich. Yeah, yes, I'm aware it exists. Horrible, <laughs> horrible movie, absolutely horrible film. Looks terrible, is terrible. There's a moment, though, she's protecting this little kid in the movie. And there's a moment where he is basically hanging over a well. Like, here we are, like, 2,100 years in the future or something, and he's hanging over what amounts to a well. And they almost reenact the scene from Lone Wolf and Cub uh, 3, or no, 2, with Daigoro in the well, and but yet they don't pull it off right, so it ends up just being a complete disaster. But like as I'm watching it, I'm like, this is that scene. How can this happen? And then like you know, no prepare to meet your mother kind of thing. And I have enough time to kill these people before you you know touch the water kind of thing, or like it's just his feet though. No, so they fuck it up. So <laughs> even more of a reason to not watch Ultraviolet. Yeah, Mike, <laughs> do you know if there was yeah. uh or there was any. Um, hip hop sampling of this because I know that oh fuck yeah the cool <laughs> backpackers who liked you know samurai movies you know it was this and um, Zatoichi so I'm sure a lot of people found this movie through rap I would guess they're sampling of Shogun Assassin okay by by Wu Tang but 
Yeah, Wu-Tang is all over this movie. They love Shogun Assassin. Yeah, and now I'm trying to think if uh, if Shogun Assassin is sampled on uh, Jizza's album or if it's a Wu-Tang album. Liquid Swords is RZA, I think. Because I think RZA eventually ends up writing a book on movies, if I'm not mistaken. And I may be mistaken. But um, like he really took his love to the next level. Yeah, well, he ended up making, yeah. Those Man with the Iron Fist films. That's right. Yes, Liquid Sword is Jizza. For, for for everybody listening to the podcast for that. Yeah, and there I mean there's been influences as well as well with like uh I know Frank Miller his Ronin comic was steeped in a lot of this stuff, but you know, I I don't remember there being a baby cart in that one. It's it, it's hilarious. I mean, great minds think alike, right? Because in the um if you look in the actual box that the Criterion set has, there's a um I don't want to say wadded up, but there's a nicely folded um, diagram of the baby cart that exists inside of the set. And it's hilarious because a friend of mine years ago, uh, when I was doing that article on the Lone Wolf and Cub films, he actually worked for a company that worked for Ford. And he, I showed him the movies, and he loved the movies. And so he did a diagram of the baby cart, very much like the one that's in the uh, Criterion box. But he did it in a, a much more technical way because he would do all these schematics for Fords. And so he's doing all the schematics as if the baby cart could be put together through these, like showing all the hidden weapons. You know, here's where the 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 machine gun is. Here's you know this pops open over here. <laughs> you know, optional sled attachment kind of thing. That's one thing I love about the series, man. Is you never get an introduction to that, like how what's inside the cart or how it was made. It just kind of eventually evolves, almost like the soundtrack it just shows up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just whatever it needs to be. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's kind of fitting that there is that that James Bond theme that's being played out in six, because basically this is his Aston Martin. <laughs> yeah, this can do whatever. <laughs> this could have a smoke screen if he wanted it to. You know, that he could have an eject button for Daigoro to carry him safely some distance away. <laughs> I mean, God, and that's one of the things, too, when it comes to why I show the second movie first is when they run across the assassins, the ninja that are in the trees, and he pushes the cart, and Daigoro hits that button, and the two blades pop out of the wheels and yeah. cut off the guy's legs. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. When, when are the, uh, the guns introduced? That's the, the third, right? Third one, yeah. 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 And then they come back a little bit. He mostly threatens a guy and like takes him out of his kingdom with those guns. I can't remember if that was four, five, or six. I think it was five. Or was yeah. it four? I don't know. Well, six has that great scene with the guns where he, uh, when they're at the cemetery, and he shoots that, that cement wall, and then they fall through the uh, cement. You see their blood dripping, and then they fall through the cement. That's pretty terrific. And I love, too, I think that's the one where he's like, on that pebbly beach and he's got the gun set up so he can, he can turn it really quick because he knows those three undead guys are out there. Yeah. And he sets up all the mines. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. 
<laughs> those guys. I love this the translation of one of those guys when he gets when he gets killed and he says like, uh, "I wish that I was able to show expression on my face." <laughs> yeah, I love the commentary after you know you've had it. Like to think it was going to be me would is ridiculous. <laughs> People can talk for a long, long time after they get sliced up sometimes. I just remember at the end of 6 where they're slutting away, and it looks like one of the worst Russian films they did on Mystery Science Theater. (laughs) And I kind of stopped and said, all right, I'm going to be outraged and say this is ridiculous. And I kind of looked at my heart, and my heart said, no, I'm still having fun. I will allow this. I will allow this sledding. Yeah, and I did. It didn't. I mean, it's it's the most ridiculous thing in the world, but I was okay. It was good they started with the sledding. You know that we start in the snow and we end in the snow, so at least we know about the sledding attachment. Yeah, you mentioned Justin Lin doing a version of this. I remember for years they were talking about Darren Aronofsky doing a version of Lone Wolf and Cub, but then at the same time, Aronofsky's name was attached to everything. I mean, this was. Right. What, uh, Requiem for a Dream Time, somewhere around there? Because it was like, oh, yeah, no, he's going to do Robocop. He's going to do Lone Wolf the Cub. He's going to do Flicker. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. He's going to do the other thing. And it was just like, oh, my God, you know. And then, you know, he, he finally ends up making another movie. And it's like, oh, yeah, none of those things. None of those things at all. The director I would want to see come back to this is, uh, you know, somebody like Takashi Miike, mm-hmm. who's done, you know, 13 Assassins, Harakiri already. Uh, you know, he, I mean, he clearly has shown an ability to create fantastic films based on movies that have, you know, are in an established universe. He's shown an ability to do remakes. Um, I mean, those are those are fantastic remakes, and I think he could do something special with that, and also kind of create that comical gore element that the uh, that the series has. As long as they stay away from that beat Takashi Zatoichi thing and all the digital blood. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or blood hitting the camera. That's that's another pet peeve. Digital blood or blood hitting the camera. Anything hitting the camera. Nothing takes you out of a film quicker than something hitting the lens of the camera. Well, if you get Takashi Miike to do it, you know, he could just do the first three in a year. He's capable of filming yeah. that fast. <laughs> <laughs> He'd be like, well, the first four came out in 72. I can do all six, maybe yeah. more. <laughs> All right, we're going to take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. If you want one. Ladies and gentlemen, go, go for a wild, wild ride with the Watusi cats. But beware, the sweetest kittens have the sharpest claws. For your own safety, see faster pussycats. Kill, kill. Wild women, wild wheels. Race the fastest pussycats, and they'll beat you to death. And again, you never can tell. You girls a bunch of nudists, or you just, uh, short of clothes? Right now, you're first on my list. And I always try to talk. You've only got one channel. And your channel's busy tuning in outside. You really should be AM and FM. So who do I get to take care of? The muscle man? 
You got two of everything, and some left over. You did want. You wanted big. Right. Or sigh, darling. Why don't you take one of each, son? They uh, both look tender. He's got a big motor to feed. But did you eat this? My motor never runs down, baby. You were too rough the last time. All right, here's how it works. Everybody's got to go. You name it, we've got it. Faster pussy that kills delivers tons more than the opposition. Unladylike karate chops, ungentlemanly haymakers, spirited gymnastics, corrective table etiquette, sandbox jousting, or a muscle-bound cat wrestling with a roaring sports car that's intent upon squashing him like a grape. Bizarre kidney and chassis-rattling chases. And for the first time on the screen, a haymaking, belly-busting, karate-chopping, judo-flipping fight to win them all. Superwoman against man. The prize, life itself. Slashing, tackling, gouging, hacking, flipping, belting, smashing, and blasting. Muscle to muscle, bone to bone. For an incredible evening's entertainment, a film so totally satisfying, see Russ Meyer's faster pussycat. Kill, kill. That's right, we'll be back next week with a discussion of Russ Meyer's Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Before we go, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Axel and Jeff. Axel, I know you've been busy with the new baby, but have you been up to anything filmy lately, sir? Well, I gotta tell you, I've been working on a a script for a while in my head involving, of all things, podcasting with a supernatural element to it, and I'm finally starting to iron out some of the details the way I want, so hopefully I'll I'll get a draft of that done. As long as it's better than Tusk, it'll be good. I can definitely beat Tusk. I, I guarantee that. Good. I set that bar low for you. <laughs> My goal is to go screaming past white noise and land somewhere in the realm of Pool if I'm very lucky and very good. Oh, wow. So even better than Fear.com.com. <laughs> <laughs> well, nothing can be that good. And Jeff, you've been busy lately with family. Uh, have you been up to anything good and filmy? Uh, not as of late. I've kind of been taking a break from uh, from movies and from social media uh, to just uh, help out my uh, my kiddo who's recovering from from some surgery. Um, but uh, starting in the new year in 2017, you can find me on One Perfect Shot once again, um, riding with that crew in the Film School Rejects Gang. But yeah, just follow me on Twitter at the Jeff Todd for uh, for the latest. How about you, Axel? Are you over tweeting? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm Facebook at Axel Cohagan, tweeting at Mr. Horror Pants, because they are very scary. Probably more sarcastic on Twitter, more pictures of baby and pets on Facebook. Occasionally the wife, but mostly baby and pets. I said, and for what it's worth, I'm stupid on both channels. Well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episodes. I'll have links over to where you can follow Axel and Jeff on their social media stuff as well as their websites and you can also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show or go over to Patreon and make a donation every donation, every rating and every review we get helps the projection booth take over the world
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.